Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 177 with my guest, Michael H. This episode is sponsored by PillPack.com, the online pharmacy that delivers convenient, pre-sorted meds right to your front door. No more hassling at your retail pharmacy, and it doesn't cost anything. Not a penny more than your retail pharmacy. No more monthly fees. Go to PillPack.com slash happy hour. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. Two hours of honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. I ain't no therapist. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. Oh, God, do I hate myself. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Go there take some surveys get let us get to know you it's all anonymous you can uh, see how other people uh, filled out their surveys you can join the forum you can support the show um there's probably all you can buy a t-shirt you can buy a coffee mug um i think that's i think that's it i do i say this every time i always feel like there's one more thing i need to share but i'm forgetting you know what i do want to share i had a fucking great day today paul why'd you have to use the f word by the way uh, I do get uh, emails from people uh, who uh, object to uh, us saying the word fuck a lot. Uh, you probably won't enjoy this episode. A lot of, uh, lot of that in, uh, in this episode. So if uh, that's going to put you off, go fuck yourself. Ooh, that was pretty sweet. That was right from the hip. That was like if, that were, if there was a gun version of that little uh, ad lib I had right there. I'd be I'd be twirling it and putting it right back in my holster. Uh, but I had a great day today, and it was such simple little things of self-care. You know, I haven't bought myself new clothes in um, three years, maybe. 
and I have one pair of jeans and the same nine t-shirts that I rotate in and out. And um, I was like, why don't I go buy myself another pair of jeans and a couple of new t-shirts? And it felt great. Uh, even there was a little voice in my head that was like, oh, look at you, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Spoil himself, but I knew I knew that was a false voice in my head, and I was like, you know, fuck you, voice. Uh, it's time I got. I had more than one pair of jeans to to wear, and um, had a great conversation with the person behind the counter. Uh, he wanted to see pictures of my woodworking. I showed. We started talking about art. It was just I felt so connected to the world. Another nice thing that I did for uh, for myself today. This is going to sound ridiculous, but. Um, I was leaving my favorite coffee shop, getting ready to get in my car to come home. And like usual, you know, I would say to myself, I really got to pee. Oh, just hold it until you get home. I went and I peed. It's something as simple as peeing when you need to pee, eating when you need to eat. You know, those little things, um, they, they, they add up. And, um, I got my car washed today. It had probably been for my, my car was embarrassing how dirty it was. People, you know, people could not only draw on the outside of it. I had a friend get into it and draw on the inside of it. There was that much dirt on the on the inside of it. So I got my car washed. It's funny just how those little, little steps can sometimes add up to, to feeling better um, about myself and not feeling so stuck. So I thought I'd share that with you. Um, I want to read something. Uh, thank you to the listener who alerted me to this great uh, article in Psychology Today. And I'll put the link up to this um, on our website. Um, and this was written by uh, Scott A. Bond, Ph.D. And he is a um, sociology and uh, uh criminology professor at Drew University. You can follow him at Doc Bon, that's D-O-C-B-O-N-N on Twitter, or visit his, web, his website, docbon.com, and that's D-O-C-B-O-N-N.com. Um, and he wrote this article, which I'm going to read, which is How to Tell a Sociopath from a Psychopath. Uh, many forensic psychologists and criminologists use the terms sociopathy and psychopathy uh, interchangeably. Leading experts disagree on whether there are meaningful differences between the two conditions. I contend that there are significant distinctions between them. Uh, the fifth edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, also known as the DSM-5, released by the American Psychiatric Association in 2013, lists both uh, sociopathy and psycho psychopathy I have the feeling I'm pronouncing those wrong, under the heading of antisocial personality disorders. These disorders share many common behavioral traits, which lead to the confusion between them. Key traits that sociopaths and psychopaths share include a disregard for laws and social mores. Um, I was about to make a s'mores joke. Didn't. Felt the need to let you know I didn't. Uh, a disregard for the rights of others. A failure to feel remorse or guilt. A tendency to display violent behavior. 
In addition to their commonalities, sociopaths and psychopaths also have their own unique behavioral characteristics as well. Sociopaths tend to be nervous and easily agitated. They are volatile and prone to emotional outbursts, including fits of rage. By the way, don't freak out when you hear either of these things read because three quarters of the way through both of them, I was like, oh my God, I'm a sociopath. Oh my God, I'm a psychopath. Um, they are likely, uh, again, uh, sociopaths are volatile and prone to emotional outbursts, including fits of rage. They are likely to be uneducated and live on the fringes of society, unable to hold down a steady job or stay in one place for very long. It is difficult, but not impossible for sociopaths to form attachments with others. Many sociopaths are able to form an attachment to a particular individual or group, although they have no regard for society in general or its rules. In the eyes of others, sociopaths will appear to be very disturbed. Any crimes committed by a sociopath, including murder, will tend to be haphazard and spontaneous rather than planned. Psychopaths, on the other hand, are unable to form emotional attachments or feel real empathy with others, although they often have disarming or even charming personalities. Psychopaths are very manipulative and can easily gain people's trust. They learn to mimic emotions despite their inability to actually feel them and will appear normal to unsuspecting people. Psychopaths are often well-educated and hold steady jobs. Some are so good at manipulation and mimicry that they have families and other long-term relationships without those around them ever suspecting their true nature. When committing crimes, psychopaths carefully plan out every detail in advance and often have contingency plans in place. Unlike their sociopathic counterparts, psychopathic criminals are cool, calm, and meticulous. The etiology, or cause of psychopathy, is different than the cause of sociopathy. One, it is believed that psychopathy is the result of nature, genetics while sociopathy is the result of nurture environment. Psychopathy is related to a physiological defect that results in the underdevelopment of the part of the brain responsible for impulse control and emotions. Sociopathy, on the other hand, is more likely the product of childhood trauma and physical slash emotional, emotion, emotional abuse. Because sociopathy appears to be learned rather than innate, Sociopaths are capable of empathy in certain circumstances, but not in others. Psychopathy is the most dangerous of all antisocial personality disorders because of the way psychopaths dissociate emotionally from their actions, regardless of how terrible they may be. Many serial killers, including Joel Rifkin and the late Ted Bundy and John Wayne Gacy, are unremorseful psychopaths. Um, thank you for that that article. And... Um, I wonder what, um, like, uh, like Bernie Madoff. What would he? What would he be considered? Because he seems crueler than a sociopath, but not violent like a psychopath. Um, but if you think about it, there, you know, there's a a violence to, you know, bilking billions of people out of. Uh, billions of dollars out of unsuspecting people. Anyway, uh, I'm going to read you a couple of surveys. This is the struggle in a sentence filled out by a teenager who calls herself Henning. Uh, she's gay and about her depression, she writes, I've known I'm gay for a few years. I don't know why, but it really messes with me. Uh, well, a little further down, I think we'll, we'll realize why it does mess with you. Um, 
Anxiety, I'm afraid that people will reject me. Uh, sexual bias, I don't really view men as three-dimensional people. And uh, racial and cultural bias, I don't really respect white people. Um, snapshot uh, that highlights her issues and struggles. I'm still in high school and I play on a sports team. They say all these horrible things about gay people. Only three of them know about me being gay. And I feel so unwelcome there. And the girls who do know never try to stop them or call them out. Uh, for it. It makes me so angry. If I call them out, they'll know and probably shun and mock me. If I don't call them out, they'll keep going. It's so frustrating and it makes me nervous and angry and really down. Well, we're sending you some love and know that outside of um, once you graduate, maybe it'll, it'll be easier to be yourself. And I don't, I don't know, I don't know how to counsel you. Um, on that that's um but we we feel you and we're sending you some love uh this is the same survey filled out by mm and about her codependent codependency my boyfriend also has anxiety and panic attacks sometimes i feel i'm with him only because nobody else would be with him that's heavy that is heavy um Snapshot from her life, uh, I am unemployed right now living with my parents. I can't decide if I want to start my own business or going back to work for someone and I don't have any money left. I'm left with my thoughts all day and my heart is constantly trying to go out through my mouth. My brain is racing and I can't breathe. Half the time I'm frantically doing stuff and the other half I'm in my bed wishing I could sleep it all away. Boy, do I relate to that. I uh, eat and drink like crazy, and then I work out like a maniac, and I feel good for a while, but then it starts all over again. I just don't know what to do. Everyone assumes it's easy to snap out of this, but it's not. Well, I think all of us listening know it is not easy to snap out of that. Um, this is filled out by Red, uh, same survey, and uh, she writes... Um, my depression is paired with binge eating disorder. When I moved to another town to attend university, I didn't look for a new dentist there. When I had problems with my teeth after a while, I just ignored it because I was certain the dentist would take one look at me and tell me all dental issues were my own fault because I was a fat slob and didn't take proper care of myself. Hearing that would have been more painful than a toothache. Only after 14 years, two lost teeth, and tons of therapy did I find the courage to go to the dentist again. He's pretty chubby himself, by the way. Always commends me on my dental hygiene and has never said a bad word to me. Oh, I that, could, that could be a happy moment, actually. And uh, finally, I want to read just this short little uh, email I got from, um, from Jeff. And uh, he calls himself El Jefe. And he writes, uh, I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder last August. It's been a terrible ride figuring out the medication and dealing with a new relationship at the same time. Now I'm planning to ask my girlfriend to marry me, but it's really weird because my sex drive has completely disappeared. This has happened many times since I started dating and I never knew what it was. The internet tells me it's a symptom of bipolar disorder. Two questions. How do I convince my fiancé to stick around while I figure this out? And what the hell do I do about this? Every website has different answers to the same questions. And I wrote him back and said, I'm not sure what to tell you. I've gone through periods where my libido disappeared. Talk to your doctor. Maybe try taking Viagra. I wish I had better advice. And then he wrote back, Thanks, buddy. 
It came back after reducing my dose. Now, if only I could stop masturbating. Oh, God, I wish I didn't need to take meds. Flat-out fucking auditory hallucinations. I would literally wake up running from my bed. I'm afraid that I'll pass my anger on to my son. I thought the gunman was my father. Afraid of not being able to make a living. Um, that's probably going to break his heart if he hears it, but that's, that's the truth. They committed him to Bellevue. There was this fear that if I feel this pain... I wish someone could see what was going on and just help me. That it will kill me and I will die and I will drown. You can't think your way out of a thinking problem. And I cried the way that a baby cries. Cried like an animal. It makes me so mad at myself that I do that. The burden of perfectionism. And that's when I got to therapy. Let's talk about that. So I was like, fuck it, I'm alive. I don't give a shit about anything. You are a shining example of what is best about human beings. I'm worried that the uh, Russian militia is coming over the hill. I know that, uh, but uh, Alice, how you feeling? I'm pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> like I'm here with Michael, who is a uh, he's a listener. He's 25 years old. He's uh, you're Asian American. Yep, Taiwanese. Ta- Taiwanese. Mm-hmm. Um, and you got your master's in marriage and family therapy, yep. and then you you've decided it's it's not for you. You want to go into music. <laughs> right, right. So it's collecting dust in my closet right now. My license, yeah. <laughs> so uh, the message here is therapy is a waste of time. Thank you guys for listening. Michael, Absolutely. Thank you for being the no, guest. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Thanks. Yeah. All right, I'm gonna go get uh, feed the meter now. <laughs> <laughs> you sent me an email about uh what was it a couple of months ago yeah yeah about and you offered yourself as a guest mm-hmm. and you said one of your issues is perfectionism and i thought that would be a great thing to to come talk about because i think it's so so pervasive mm-hmm. i think it affects us in so many different ways yeah um so where would be a good place to start with your, your – are there any other issues that you struggle with uh, outside of perfectionism? Oh, I'm sure lots. But, yeah, I've struggled with depression and anxiety my whole life. Um, and um, so, yeah, I'm sure as we talk, stuff will come up. But, okay. yeah, definitely. Okay. Uh, were you born in the States? I was born in Houston, Texas. So I'm I'm Southern. And I don't ride a, a horse to school all the time, just sometimes. <laughs> just yeah, once just, in a while. Just once in a while, yeah. Uh, I know a guy in my support group. He's an old timer. He's been mm-hmm. sober almost fifty years. All right. And towards the end of his drinking, he would. He, this was so long ago that uh-huh. he was drinking. He took a horse from the bar home, and he would be so drunk he would just climb up onto the horse, and the horse knew where to go. The horse would get him home. Hey, that's better than drunk driving, isn't I mean, it? Hey, drunk riding. Okay. <laughs> Got to get some some horses out there, but that just yeah. always that always makes me laugh. Uh, anyway, so um, you you grew up in Texas, mm-hmm. and what was uh, what was your family life like? Uh, yeah, I would say, you know, and I, I listen to the podcast and I always hear the surveys. I would say fairly dysfunctional. Um, definitely not to a point where a lot of other guests have, have talked about, but again, you know, it's not a competition. So, uh, growing up, so I, I so the the household was was my father, my mother, uh, and my older brother and I. My older brother is six years apart. Um, my parents always had a weird uh, relationship. My mom, ever since uh, I was born and even before, she's always hated my dad, loathed him. Um, so growing up, you know, we would kind of get caught in between both of them. Uh, my mom would uh, kind of pit my brother and I against him and really just kind of forced him out of the family. You know, he 
and he had to go work during the day and then my mom took care of us and kind of fed us you know horror stories about him he's a horrible person and whatnot um and so growing up i i, I remember i i you know attempted suicide at like third grade you know what yeah i i remember that it's a very distinct memory you and know? you failed as a perfectionist that i must know, have eaten your soul you up. know and that's that's what i've been struggling with in my therapy i failed my <laughs> suicide attempt it's not perfect yeah <laughs> um but yeah, I mean, in, in third grade, I mean, I was like, what, eight years old? Wow, that breaks know? my heart. Yeah, and, and you know, and now I have, uh, you know, just in retrospect, you know, as an older adult now, I, it breaks my heart too because no one caught that that was an issue. Actually, so... Did your, your parents knew about oh, it? Oh, they knew about it. I yeah. was in the living room. Okay, so I, I stru- struggled a lot with anxiety about school. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, like studying therapy and psychology, and I knew those were all now, those were all signs of depression in children. Um, I would fake being sick because I was too scared to go to school. I would always um, worry about all these things. I always constantly worried my parents were going to die or something. Um, but anyway, so it was like a Sunday, uh, and I, I didn't want to go to school Monday, you know, and this happened every week. I didn't want to go to school Monday. And I remember... Um, so my brother was always into martial arts, and we have a set of uh, real swords, real swords. They were not sharp, though. Um, and I remember taking one and trying to, you know, samurai oh style, you know, yeah, stab myself with it. And instead of um, being concerned, my, my, my parents, my dad especially, he made fun of me um, for it because uh, he knew it was a dull sword. So he was like, you know... I don't remember exactly what he said, but I remember him laughing, kind of like, like it was a joke. So, was he misunderstanding what your intent was, or was he just a dick? I I don't really think they were misunderstanding my intent, because um, I said I'm going to kill myself. I'm going to kill myself, and I was in you know I was crying, and I was uh, oh my god, yeah. And and I think what it was is because that happened so many times, not not necessarily suicide attempt, but my freakouts. Um, that it was like they were kind of fed up, they were frustrated, and then so, um, you know, and to this day, yeah, I still remember. And so that that was my dad. Um, and 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 maybe we'll get into this later. But you know, growing up, I've had many suicide attempts. My mom has um, said things like, out of her frustration, you know what? Maybe I should kill you and kill myself too, and just get it over with, and things like that. Um, my parents. And and our relationship is much better now. Uh, I've had to do a lot of work the past few years, especially since I went to college. I moved back home. Oh, that was a pain in the ass. But our relationships are better now. Are uh, you still living at home? I am, but I am moving out. Oh, uh, dude. Yeah, I'm definitely. High five. Yeah, I have been trying to move out the past few years. Um, but finally, I'm in a better place in my life. And yeah. Let's just rewind for a sure. second. Describe what you can remember when you were that kid in third grade what you were thinking and feeling in in that moment when you decided to to try to to take your life and afterwards when your dad made fun of you do you, do you are there physical sensations or emotional sensations that you remember i mean definitely emotional or you know i remember the sense of just anxiety uh, that led me to that point, like, 
like how intense like you know i was fucking eight years old and it's one thing for an eight-year-old not to want to go to school that's you know no eight-year-old wants to go to wake up and go to school but i feared it i loathed it was it a general fear or was it a specific fear? i think it was a general fear yeah. those um, are the worst sometimes i think because you can't pinpoint it yeah and anything can uh, you can at least sometimes use logic to mm. take apart a specific right. fear but a generalized fear or anxiety yeah so go ahead uh, yeah, I mean, on that note, I mean, I think it was a generalized fear. And so none of the adults in my life caught it. And it's me, I didn't even know what was going on, you know. Um, but I just do, I do remember the intensity that obviously led me to at least have the idea of wanting to kill myself and physically trying. Um, if, the, if that little kid could have found a sentence or two to express what he wanted to say, what what would he have said? You know, I I need help. I don't know why. I don't know how, but I need help. Um, yeah, and that's... Now, if if 25-year-old mar marriage and family therapist Michael <laughs> yeah. could get in a time machine mm -hmm. and go back and walk into that living room, what would you, what would you have done? I would have hugged him and just said that, hey, it's it's okay. You know, it's okay. You're not you're not crazy, um, and that it's not your fault for feeling that way. Because oh, I always felt like it was my fault. I always felt like there was something wrong with me. It sounds like your parents made you feel that way. Yeah. And and. Correct me if I'm wrong, because mm -hmm. you've had a lot of experience counseling yeah. kids and families. It's not, it seems like kids kind of go to the blaming themselves first anyway. So if you've got a parent on top of that, just confirms it, confirming it that that's that's some emotional cement being poured. Yeah, you know, especially at such an early age. You know, no wonder why I had so much fucked up things going on. Yeah. You know. Um, so yeah, you know, and 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 that's the thing. I mean, I I've I've seen that in in my, you know, when I was a therapist, dude, that I, I worked solely with kids, uh, who were sexually abused, and, you know, I saw that day in and day out, and they kept blaming themselves, uh, and not all. Some of the parents were very supportive, but some. I I it was a nightmare working with them. I wanted to strangle the fucking parents, because they wouldn't believe. And they would um, continue to confirm that, hey, it's the kid's fault. Fix the kid. I'm bringing the kid to therapy. Why do I have to go to therapy? Fix the fucking kid. And, um, yeah. Had the parents had a hand in sexually abusing the child? Or they just felt no. like the, the kid should be further along than they were? Like like the kid was dragging his feet, making it more difficult to yeah. heal than it should be, not understanding. It was the latter because uh, so I, I worked at a, a child advocacy center. It's a huge one in, in um, Houston, you know, and all we did was sexual abuse, not not neglect, not ab uh, physical abuse, just sexual abuse. And we were waitlisted and we had lots of people. We had police in there, therapists, social workers, you name it. Um, and yeah, so we didn't deal with the offending caregivers um it was always the non-offending so but you know i think a lot of the, the parents were either in denial or they they 
were so uncomfortable with the idea that maybe this happened on their watch or something. But a lot of times, and, and it became a pattern, you know, they really would kind of blame the child. Oh, the child was just seeking attention or is the child's oh, fault? Uh, you know, uh, the child should have known better. It's a fucking child, you know, um, and it makes you wonder sometimes too what what was in that adult's past. Yeah, that, and a lot of times it was a, a abuse history. Yeah, because they don't mm. want to open that door because then they got to look at right. their demon. Right, right. Um, so getting back to your mm-hmm. your story, so um, you're attempting suicide. Yeah. in third grade. Mm-hmm. Um, what what's the next? Give me some some other snapshots from from childhood. <laughs> when do you remember the perfectionism? Um, I I would imagine it was there as early as you can remember. Yeah, yeah, it was always fucking there. Um, I I do remember, you know, I did very well in school. Um, uh, you know, yeah, that's high achieving school. Um, and and I, I I've learned now that, and if if there's teachers and school people out there who are listening, it's it's the kids who aren't acting up. It's the kids who are super quiet, doing their homework and not saying anything that are the ones that might have problems. Um, I remember I was in fifth grade, uh, so I was 10 years old, and um, during recess, I brought my homework with me. I didn't talk with, you know, I had friends. I got along with everyone. I never had enemies, but I brought my homework, and I would do my homework in uh, during recess. Um, or the second I got home, I would open up the books to finish my homework as quick as possible so I could relax. I couldn't relax if I had if I knew there was homework. Was uh, it that it would, you would feel overwhelmed by responsibility? I think so. You know, it was, it, I felt that it, in order for me to enjoy myself, to feel relaxed, I had to get it over with, you yeah. know, otherwise it's, it's hanging on my head. I gotcha. You know, um, and fortunate, I had a really, man, I, and I, to this day, I feel very fortunate that this, my fourth grade or fifth grade teacher, I, I forget when, when I was doing that, she pulled my binder aside and said, no, go, go play, you know, go, wow. go, you know, and I, I think that was great, you know, so I, was I, that a little bit of a wake up call that maybe you were a little too serious of a kid? A tad bit, but it really didn't reach my, my mind until older. Um, but yeah, you know, and, and I, I'm really appreciative of that because again, you know, in my experience as a therapist, yeah, I see the kid once a week, these teachers, you know, and these educators, they're, they're the ones, they're the front lines, you know, and, um, so anyways, yeah, I mean, I think that was definitely a big sign of the perfectionism, um, and just the anxiety about school and. Was there always a feeling that the, that time was your, was your enemy? Like, like aware of the, and this is me reading some of my own personal experience into it, but when I have a fear of responsibility and afraid I'm not going to do something perfect, there's always a feeling like it's me versus the clock. Like the passage of time is just, you know, a parade of my failure. You know, oh, look, it's six o'clock and you still haven't done this. It's March is over and Mm -hmm. you still haven't done this. And there's almost a feeling when I wake up, like, like the clock is mocking me. Yeah. It's, it's like laughing you in your face and ha, you are a fuck up. You look at you, you know, you haven't done this. And yeah. And, and, you know, and when we're talking about perfectionism and perfectionism, because it's like synonymous with procrastination. Mm -hmm. Right. Because it's fucking scary to try to do something not perfect. If it isn't perfect, then 
that means you're not perfect and that means you're a piece of shit that mm -hmm. means you're you're not worthy of anybody's time you're not worthy of love um so yeah i i i think I couldn't have summed it up any better than that. It, you know. My first memory as a child, one of my first half dozen memories as a mm -hmm. child is being in kindergarten and we were all assigned to color mm -hmm. in a coloring page. Mm -hmm. And I think we were given two different crayons and I suddenly realized halfway through that I had reversed it and I had colored the wrong color in the wrong space mm -hmm. and I was inconsolable. Yeah. And I, re I remember the teacher looking at me like, almost like she wanted to to laugh. Yeah. Like, it, like, what is your fucking problem? Right, like, right. you, this is crazy how mm -hmm. upset you are. Mm -hmm. And um, that, that made an impression on me. Yeah. And I didn't realize until I got into therapy years mm -hmm. later that that was maybe the first sign that, that that something was was wrong give, give right. me some some snapshots of um perfectionist moments in well, your life right before that just on that note yeah. and then that's like a perfect opportunity for the teacher to really say okay yeah he's freaking out about this maybe there's an issue but anyways you know that's just a little aside um but snapshots of perfectionism <laughs> i'm still dealing with it um I mean, and how about, how about today? Just literally today. today. Give me, give me some perfectionist thoughts or angst that you had, if you can think of any. Uh, well, just like five minutes ago, trying to find the right parking spot. Uh, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't want to, you know, park in the wrong spot. I, I opened up your email and read it like ten million times. I was like, no, this has to be it. This has to be it. You know. Um, so just that, and then um, just a second ago, I came from the um, the ASCAP convention, so it was a composer uh, convention here in L.A., that's why I'm in town, and I'm sitting there listening to uh, people, you know, brave enough to show their songs and have feedback, and I'm I'm sitting here, I'm, I'm having a fucking panic attack, like, in the audience, because I'm like, ah, my music's not as good as them, oh my god, why am I doing this, and, you know, so... So I'm fucking dealing with it right now. You yeah. Know? <laughs> How about in, in recording this podcast? Are you uh, having any? Or you surprisingly, feel I feel really relaxed. I was worried about it. Um, hell, I had to even kind of coach myself to send you that email because I was like, oh my god, I, I, if if my podcast is not aired or if my podcast isn't perfect or I don't make a good impression with Paul, then I'm, you know, a bad person and, and no one wants to hear what I have to say. Blah 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 blah. And, you know, through therapy and, and, you know, I've, I've improved a lot the past few years. Um, and so I, I'm just, I'm happy to be here. I'm taking it as an awesome experience. I've never recorded a podcast. I'm happy to meet you. You know, I, oh, I hear your thanks. soothing voice oh, all over the time. And now I get to look at you in the face. So, oh, thank you. Uh, so no, I, I feel really relaxed and really happy about yeah. just being natural here. You know what, uh, when perfectionism gets me too, is mm. if somebody, takes too long to email me back oh, and I've and I've oh revealed God. something personal of myself <laughs> I immediately go back and look at it and go what what have mm -hmm. I said that might come across as creepy sure. or inappropriate right. or what could be misinterpreted and then I have trouble sleeping when I wake up in the morning I look at my phone first thing mm -hmm. to see if they've emailed me back right and uh it's it's crazy and it's not unlike people who I know who are love addicted oh, yeah. and are addicted to the text waiting from that oh, person. God, it's that yeah. validation. Yeah. How you see me is how I see myself. Definitely. And I mean I, I can relate to that personally. I was gonna give a texting, you know, example. I mean I'm I'm not too bad with the ladies, so, you know, yeah. but but recently I've been struggling because yeah, the same thing. It's like you send a text and it's like, oh my god, they haven't responded. Oh my god, oh my god. And then, and again, you yeah, you can't rest until 
They text back. And then when they text back, whew, then oh, the relief, <sighs> the relief yeah. is unimaginable because you're waiting for that relief the whole fucking time you know it's like you're in jail and they hold the key to your to your jail exactly and 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 not only that though what's worse is if they text but they don't text what you want exactly (laughs) if it's too short then it's like oh my god then what are they really thinking are they pretending to be nice blah 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 blah. yeah exactly no i very much relate to that yeah and that's one of one of the things why i think support groups and having Mm -hmm. coffee with trusted friends is so great because you know, you get to see their facial expressions and right. hear the intonation of their voice, and you can't, you know, it's it's yeah, it's text pretty, to email, you can't, you can't, especially if somebody's sarcastic and doesn't oh, know yeah. their the sarcasm doesn't translate well, not at all. <laughs> but let's get back to mm-hmm. uh, to you and your your fantastic childhood. Oh yeah, it was so great, so much fun. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I just you know. Another thing that just popped in my mind, I remember, uh, you know, and all this is all still elementary school. Um, I would count the days on the calendar until summer break, you know, uh, and it would be excruciating because I would wait. I, for, for some reason, school just created lots of anxiety for me. Uh, funny that I think about that I'd rather be at home and not at school when actually the problems were at home. So, Interesting. I don't know what that's about. That just came to my mind, you know. Um but anyway, so just uh, kind of giving a, a snapshot of the dynamic. So basically, my dad, uh, he would dedicate his life to work because... What did he do? So he was cancer re- or is still a cancer researcher. So he's in the medical field, very successful. Um, my brother and I have stayed far away from any sort of hard sciences. Um, but yeah. Give it- just because you didn't want to become your dad? No, it wasn't that. It was just, it was not our interest. Not yeah. our interest. Um, but yeah, uh, so so it, it wasn't that he didn't want, he wanted to be in the family very much, but it's my mom hated him. Um, so he just dedicated himself to work all the time. He would come home, but he would just dedicate himself to work. And so he became very successful at work, uh, but family life was pretty shitty. So... So there's that. And then so we had a very neurotic mom, um, still neurotic, um, who's in L.A. with me now. Was it better? But um, raising us, uh, she's both of them had their demons, but she has lots of her demons that she never has never addressed. And she's who you live with back in Houston. Yeah. And she's mm-hmm. traveling. Why did she come with you to Los Angeles? And this is um, this is a part of the, the thing. Uh I've always had to be kind of the adult in the uh, family and because she doesn't have friends um, and she has her own demons that she hasn't gotten checked, I'm always kind of taking care of her. Mm. And for the listeners, there's air quotes here. Um, And so, you know, I told her, I'm going to go to this ASCAP convention. It's really cool. Um, I'm going to really pursue music. And she's, oh, can I come? Can I come? And at first, I really did not. You know, this is my time, uh, and especially when that happens, things were still pretty rocky. Um, this was pretty recently, but um, but uh, combination of a few things. One, I am being financially supported by my family, my parents, which I feel so much guilt about, and we can get into that later. Um, I feel like I owe them. Two, our relationship has. I've been trying to improve our relationship. 
Um, but three, the more dysfunctional reason is I'm still taking care of, I'm still being the adult and taking care of her emotions. You're her lifeline. You're yes. her last hope. Right. Right. Okay. Um, and so that's why she's in LA with me. Uh, I'm trying to keep my distance and she's, she, you know, I don't want to paint a horrible picture about my parents. I mean, she's, she's very supportive and she's giving me my space. She understands, but yeah, it, it's hard, um, to try to balance that and are you two sleeping in a queen or a king uh you know just a twin, a twin. just one twin that's I, I, one twin i can't yeah. disagree with that yeah no <laughs> that's, some, that's some good quality time right right i mean hey you know just try to improve the family relationship <laughs> with some minor incest related oedipal complexes <laughs> But um, the days in actually has an incest special. That, uh, that's what we have actually. Yeah, we, they cut us a really good deal. Yeah, really good deal. And includes a continental breakfast mm -hmm. and then therapy right afterwards. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Ugh. Well, dude, uh, uh, I can't tell you how much I relate mm -hmm. to what you have going yeah. on your plate this weekend. Mm -hmm. um, it there's so many questions I want to I, I, I want to ask you. Yeah. Um, be the be the therapist sure. for a second mm. to Michael and his mom. Oh yeah. And Michael calls you and says, "I want to go to an ASCAP convention." Mm. And my mom wants to know if she can come with. Be the be the therapist. <laughs> therapist, no way. Uh, that's that's what I would say as as Michael's therapist, um, because. I mean, yes, your relationship has, has improved. That's great. Um, but again, you are uh, taking responsibility that you don't need to, that is unhealthy, that, and I'm going to use family therapy terms, that is uh, structurally imbalanced. Um, she's the parent. You're, you're your own self. You need to differentiate from her. You need to have your own life. Um, and, and, and Michael would say, oh, but... I feel so guilty they're supporting me and I feel like I owe them and all this stuff. And as a therapist, I say, no, yes, I mean, that's good that you have the support. Um, but that doesn't mean that you need to put yourself in emotional harm's way. It doesn't do anyone any good. Um, and and there are, there's ways to improve your family relationship without having to risk yourself, without having to sacrifice yourself. Um, so yeah. And then what would Michael say back to that? Fuck off. No. You don't have to look at her sad face all no. weekend. <laughs> Michael would, would, would wholeheartedly agree. Um, it's, it sounds like it's really hard to not carry her pain. It is. Uh, I think, and, and yeah, and that's what Michael would say is, um, you know, I completely agree. Every bone in my body. But at the same time, Oh, just uh, knowing, and this is part of the, the boundary issues, you know, she's shared all her misery with me and confided in me as a friend slash therapist when that was inappropriate. Do you consider that incest? Uh, it's pretty fucking close. Uh, I mean... Thank God it was never uh, emotional. Oh yeah. yeah, no, definitely. And 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 if I can make a point of that on this podcast for the listeners, I mean that, like as parents, that's not okay. It's that's not. fucking not okay. You know, it really, you know, sh it's good that you don't touch them inappropriately. That should be a given. But when you fucking air out your own stuff 
to your kids. Their own adult issues. Their own adult issues, yes. Uh, That's not okay, you know. Um, And, you know, talking about boundary issues, when... So this is just part of my growing up. One of the, I see a key pivotal parts of my life was the summer before um, middle school. Um, my brother went to college and I was very bummed out about that. And, you know, that's that's a whole nother story. You know, my brother and I were very close because um, my parents were, it was just such a dysfunctional thing. But anyways, uh, one boundary uh, issue was I uh, I was about to go on a long trip I'm talking like two weeks three weeks long trip with my dad just him and me you know and I think he was super excited it was like bonding time <clears throat> we're gonna go to back to Taiwan visit family and then go to Hong Kong I can so see where this is going uh, yeah. I'm just picturing my mom and it being so threatened it's yeah uh, I mean yeah definitely threatened you know she's not she's not too happy about this and then so and at this time, my dad's pretty successful, um, and apparently, I guess he made some enemies along the way, so I don't know how. His enemy faxed, this is back in the day of faxing, um, faxed this very mean letter t- to my mom saying, hey, your dad had, or, um, well, your husband had this affair. I know about it, blah, 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 blah. My mom couldn't handle it. She doesn't have friends. She doesn't have a therapist. Who does she tell? She tells 11-year-old Michael. Who is oh, the, my God. This is literally two or three days before my trip. Um, and and obviously that fucked up the whole trip for me and my dad. I was pissed off. I was super fucking pissed off at my dad. Um, Do you think your mom, that's why she told you because she knew it would sabotage I think in You're a way, bonding with him? yes, I think because she was so angry at him, she wanted to sabotage him in a way. And in addition to that, she really had no support system. She couldn't hold it all in. It was too much for her. So, and, 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 and my brother's uh, in college and even telling my brother would be a mistake. And he was 18, 19. I was fucking 11 um, and no one else in the house but me. Right. So she tells me. And so, obviously, I fucking loathe my dad. Um, and so, on the trip, you know, I give him the cold shoulder. He's super frustrated, doesn't know why. And then it was until after the trip, you know, I told him. I still remember flicking him off. <laughs> yeah. You know, and... Um, what did he say when you told him you knew? Uh, and then he said, oh, my oh my God, that makes sense. You know, I think he was just relieved to at least know... Yeah, why? Why, why you know... We were excited about this trip. Why are you treating like shit, you know? Um, so, yeah, that, that was a whole fucking ordeal. <laughs> and and just to, to add a little bit to that, fast forward, like, uh, yeah, 10 years after I graduated college. I, gr- I went to college in a different city, um, and I could move back home. And it happened again, uh, I guess, more enemies. said It was the exact same situation, only this time it's email. So 21st century, um, my mom got this email and you would think that she would learn from her mistake, but no, she tells me again, and I'm older now and I have gone through my therapy and I know that fucked me up and that pissed me off because the exact same dynamic It's like, Hey, don't fucking tell me, you know? And, but anyways, just rewinding back to the first time I, what she said, and that pissed me off now, but at the time I didn't think about it was, and this is 11 year old Michael. 
Michael, you're old enough to know this now. So let me tell you what this this wow. is about. You know. And so that fucked me up. You still feel angry about it? I did. Uh, you don't? I don't anymore. I've pro- And trust me, I've... And that's another thing that I've um, dealt with. Depression, anxiety, and rage. Not just anger. Oh, rage. Rage. Yeah. yeah. And I, I went through a breakup a few years ago that really kind of opened up a lot of things. And, and that's what I worked on was rage. Um, so, yeah, I felt so much rage about that. Not anymore because uh, I worked through it and it was a hard process. Um, Does anything bring up our childhood issues like a, an adult uh, breakup? No, nothing. 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 It really is. It's a time adults. machine. It really is. And it can be such a great opportunity to mm-hmm. work through stuff with yeah. with a good support system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm so grateful that it happened. It was, I hit rock bottom. It was horrible. Um, but I'm grateful that it happened. Tell me, tell me about it. Uh, so, so, so yeah, I, I mean, it actually segues, segues well with the whole uh, affair thing. Cause ever since then I've been like trying to be the perfect boyfriend, you know, um, super loyal. I have loyalty tattooed on my neck, you know, um, it's very important to me. And so I was trying to be the, the man, uh, that I guess that, Oh, I feel gross saying this. The man that my mother never had. Ugh. But, um, thank you for saying that. Yeah. No, I, yeah, that felt really, I love gross moments. I know. I the love best. them. They're the best. <laughs> Makes me feel less gross. No. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean that, I think in very much what I've been trying to, in my, you know, romantic relationships, I'm trying to be this perfect guy who is, and I'm, I'm very much a feminist, um, especially after my family therapy training, but I'm, you know, considerate. I, I, I do the dishes. I, I will go out of my way to, uh, be considerate of the other person. And so I've struggled with this, um, throughout my relationships. Um, my first relationship in high school. And, and not only that, very, I'm always very committed, overly committed. Where uh, instead of just dating, like I've been on one date in my life, maybe two, but the rest were all like, oh, very serious, long year committed relationships. So I'm trying to create the family I never had. Uh, so anyways. Uh, how, are, how are the women you're dating responding? Emotionally unavailable. I was going to say. <laughs> yeah. That's got to be terrifying. Yeah. If somebody isn't mm-hmm. in a good place and healthy and present and oh, ready yeah. for commitment, that's got to feel overwhelming to them. Overwhelming. Probably intoxicating at first. Oh, yeah. And then. Oh, yeah. But then as as it keeps going, it's, yeah, I mean, I've been, yeah. I mean, my history has been always with, um, and, and I noticed this too through my therapy, is I'm attracted to emotionally unavailable girls. Mm-hmm. Yeah. First girl, you know, high school, she was emotionally available, but she would not tell her parents. She was so scared to tell her parents that she had a boyfriend. And uh, and so basically, like, you know, we would be together, but then the parents would drive by and she would push me into, like, the grass or, sort of, like, the bushes or something. Get the fuck away from me! And, you know. Um, oh and we, we had to love in secret. Um and then, uh, but, uh, but anyways, this past one, I've, I've been in, uh, two very, um, committed relationships and then this past one really fucked me up. Um, she was very emotionally distant. Uh, and I, I'm, was that intoxicating to you? Um, I don't know if it was intoxicating, but what it did, ha- uh, what it caused me to do was try harder to try to love me, love me, show me affection. Uh, I, I'll, 
I'll, you know, clean your place while you're at school. I'll cook you dinner and all this stuff, you know, all this romantic, sappy, you know, Disney movie bullshit that, you know, you kind of get spoon fed. Um, and, and the less she responded, the harder I tried. Do you think on a certain level she knew that that wasn't the authentic you, that that was kind of a scared you? Um, mm. Because that's that, you know, as you describe that to mm-hmm. me, I think that's that's not. Even though I don't know you that well, mm-hmm. that doesn't sound like an authentic person. That no. sounds like a coping mechanism yeah. f- of somebody who's coming from a place of fear and neediness. Very much. I, I think that, yeah, that definitely 110% was coping. I thought that was me. Yeah. I, at the time, I thought that was me. That was not. And who you needed to be to be safe in the world. Yes. And and who I needed to be to get love because I didn't really get healthy love uh, growing up. And, and this is one of my main... Um, issues i deal with now is this fear of rejection and hence the perfectionism yeah yeah so that's so actually yeah that's a very good segue because the perfectionism was like this coping mechanism if i'm the perfect boyfriend how could she not love me you know um and yet and yet you know telling you anything you don't know mm-hmm. you're perfect in your imperfection exactly and that's the thing that mm-hmm. if there is going to be true love who somebody's going because you'll know it when you when you feel it when yeah. you feel somebody's rough edges in there oh, yeah and i think all they really want in a partner is for you to recognize your flaws and when your flaws hurt them to apologize right and, and to, to and be willing to work to with work that. on them yeah. and, and say i'm going to keep trying to grow that's mm-hmm. that's my commitment to this relationship but yeah um it takes a lot of years to learn that yeah. shit and to be comfortable with it because it's yeah. vulnerability is terrifying you know right. i've been with my wife for you know 25 26 years mm-hmm and I'm still afraid of looking unmanly in front right. of her because I'm afraid that she's not going to want to have sex with me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's so sometimes I find myself sharing my vulnerability with, uh, you know, maybe a, a female in a support group mm-hmm. because I know that's if if she thinks I'm a chump or whatever. Yeah. It's, it's not, not going to affect, it's not gonna affect my yeah, life. Right. It's terrifying. Yeah, especially with the people closest to us, especially with the people we want love from. Um, and yeah, and, and you know, I'm so glad that you bring up this, this the vulnerabilities, the imperfections that make us perfect. You know, I've been on this whole uh, Dr. Brene Brown, you know. She's awesome. She's amazing, you know. Her, her book about imperfection, really, like every page resonates. And really her well. TED talk about vulnerability. Oh, my God, yeah. You know, um, and so, yeah, it's just, uh, yeah, all these lessons I learned after the breakup, the breakup was real tough. Um, and, uh, you know, and so she was really emotionally distant. And then when she broke up with me, she gave a very, you know, it it was, it was not an authentic answer. It's like, oh no, I want to concentrate on school and all this stuff. And, uh, so she broke it off, but uh, so I became severely which is, depressed. Which is almost like that text, that mm. short. Oh my and god! Yeah, 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 yeah. It just makes you spin even more. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't sleep. You know, I. Um, Do you consider yourself a, a bit of a love addict? Yeah. Okay. I think so. I think so. Uh, I think I've gotten better uh, after the the breakup and after the the intense therapy. But yeah, I think so. Um. Because you were starting to, to um, share oh. a thought, and I... Oh, no, no, no. Uh, well, yeah, so basically, uh, yeah, so it was a very painful experience. Um, you know, uh, I, I went... Felt like a false 
answer from her. It was her. a bullshit answer, you know, and then uh, I've got the real answer from her, you know, like six months later. Um, Which was? Oh, yeah, this was horrible. Uh, what'd she say to me? You're just, you're too sensitive. I can't handle your pressure, the depression. Get over it. I don't understand why you can't just get over it. Oh, that fucking killed me. Well, it's a good thing that you guys broke up. Yeah. Because there's no future with somebody who thinks mm-hmm. depression is something you just need to get over. And and the funny thing is, too, her best friend and I were both psychology majors. And when we when we were together, she would ask, because I, I was very open with her about my depressive bouts. Um, she with had, her friend? Uh, or with her? With her, with okay. my girlfriend. And so my girlfriend would ask the other friend, you know, or they would talk about, it's like, man, I, I don't know what to do. And that friend told her the right thing. Oh, yeah, you never want to tell a depressive person um, to just get over it. And so she knew that, but she said it anyways. Because she fell backed up in a corner when we were talking that time. She felt she became defensive. And I think it was her own guilt and stuff. And she, I can, now in retrospect, I think she's had, has all a, a lot of her own issues she didn't deal with. So she attacked me. And uh, I remember that conversation, too. I was... Uh, I wanted to yell and say fuck you and all this stuff but being the perfect boyfriend I remembered when she when we were together that she never she told me that she couldn't handle if someone she loved raised her voice or raised their voice at her so I even when I was getting attacked I never raised my voice I still holding out I was for, hold- for mm-hmm. something to get back yeah I was like wow yeah and Oh, but you know, my therapy sessions afterwards, oh, there was a lot of that. I imagine that there are people listening to your story Mm. right now. Some of them are just cringing Mm. at hearing their story come out of your mouth and those feelings. And that because there are few things as shame inducing as quote unquote blowing a relationship. Oh, yeah. And feeling that rejection and that we should have handled it differently and mm-hmm. oh i mean i'm i'm feeling it in my stomach yeah ooh yeah it you know because it's like oh there it's confirmation there's something wrong with you that yes. this person doesn't want to stay with you you know um where in actuality it's you know a few things timing uh things just don't work out with this other person and also this other person may have and most likely has this baggage that they're bringing in as well um, but yeah, so that was a fucking horrible, it was like the, one of the worst days of my life. Cause she basically confirmed my deepest fears. Uh, Hey Michael, you're broken. You're, you struggle with depression. You should be ashamed of that. And you suck. And I don't want to be with you. And then a year later she starts dating my, my friend who was, who witnessed my pain. You know, he was one of someone I trusted very much. Uh, and he knew how hard I took it. And they started going out. So, uh, are you still friends no, with him? I was no, 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 no. Say. I, I, I cut them off. Um, and and uh, I cut. Actually, we had a lot of mutual friends. I cut them all out. You know, I'm much happy for uh, happier for it. Um, We're gonna uh, pause here for a second and uh, give some sponsor love. Um, I want to give a shout out to Care.com. It's a uh, subscription service that offers the ability to search and connect with local caregivers in uh, child care, senior care, pet care, tutoring, housekeeping, and more. Uh, Premium membership allows members to contact caregivers and access background checks, 
Um, they also offer the ability to pay, uh, pay your caregiver uh, through their site and receive nanny tax support through their home pay platform. Um, I think you know if you've ever tried to find a, a babysitter or a dog sitter uh, or, or any other type of uh, care, you want references. You want to know that this person is uh, is dependable, and um, Care.com is just a great way to, to find that. Um, you can sign up. You can search or browse tons of local caregivers, and you can check out detailed references and reviews. So whatever you're looking for, go to uh, care.com slash happy hour and save 25% when you become a premium member. It's the largest online destination for care with 10.7 million members. Um, Again, go to care.com slash happy hour. I want to also give some love to our uh, fantastic supporter, uh, PillPack appreciate the uh, support they've been giving us um, the last uh, couple of months, and it's a great product. Um, it's an online pharmacy that delivers meds pre-sorted, pre-packaged right to your front door. Uh, super easy to sign up. All you got to do is give them some basic information. They contact your present pharmacy, and then they make the transition seamless. So there's no uh, drop-off in uh, you getting your meds. It's it's a seamless transition. It doesn't cost any more uh, than it would at your retail pharmacy. There's no monthly fees, and uh, they have great customer service. They know your meds are important to you. Uh, so you don't have to wait in line anymore at a pharmacy. You don't have to wonder, did I take them? It's right there. The roll of meds you pull off, uh, almost like a deli ticket. Um, you can look and you can see whether or not you took your meds. And there's no showing up to a pharmacy and finding out that they can they can only uh, fill half your prescription. you got to come back and wait behind 10 people in line again. So, uh, yeah, go check it out. They ship prescriptions to 33 states and non-prescriptions um, to all 50. And uh, go to pillpack.com slash happy hour. And uh, just by checking out the website, um, you're supporting this show because they uh, – They'll see that you guys are supportive of, uh, of our sponsors. Again, pillpack.com slash happy hour. And so, so it was through this breakup, it was the past three years, I really worked on my rage because I've never experienced it before. I've, I've had breakups before and, and they were horrible and I, I went through suicidal uh, attempts with the breakups and stuff. But this time it was different. It was rage. Talk about that. Like I've never experienced rage before. Uh, that I knew of, uh, and and I think when the breakup happened, I I it's so hard to describe. It's not just anger; it's like this white hot fire in your chest, and you just like I remember I would just go into basically manic yelling battles in my room, like at the top of my lungs. My my as if someone was there with you or yeah. at yourself. Uh, no, I, it it I would like it wasn't even I wasn't even gearing my anger at myself or anyone i was just yelling i just needed a release you know I what would, would you say uh sometimes i will not even say anything i would just yell you know um oh fuck was my one of my favorite words uh, at the time it's a good one that's a great you know yeah. it's got the strong consonants mm-hmm. it's short um but yeah you know i remember just yelling and 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 breaking shit and like punching holes in my wall. And- I can recommend a good word uh, mm-hmm. when somebody pisses you off and you find yourself unable to not yell at them. Mm-hmm. Fuck stick. 
is nice because you got two you got two hard consonants in there. I do like that. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. a big fan of fuck stick. Fuck stick. Okay, yeah. I'm, I'm going to take yeah. that one if you yeah. don't mind. Yeah, yeah. that's a good Go one. Go <laughs> Sorry, fuck stick. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, and so and so what that was was I mean, sure, it was some of it was you know being pissed off at the relationship, but a lot of that was. Uh, it was my opportunity to work on my upbringing, things that I bottled up inside as a, a quote-unquote, uh, very nice, quiet Asian boy who doesn't, you know, speak out all of that. It was all of that. And, you know, yeah. Do you feel like there is a, a cultural element of being Asian? Definitely. Let's talk about that. Definitely, you know, and... um you know, I was always very involved in the Asian American scene in uh, in uh, college, and yeah, what I learned was, and I think it's getting better now. And and with our generations, um, you know, like me, born in America, uh, were your parents immigrants? Yes, they were immigrants. So they uh, came from Taiwan and and uh, uh, moved in around the seventies. You know, uh, but yeah, very much a cultural thing uh, because it's social taboo in very traditional Asian cultures. And, and I would say it spans pretty much across most of Asia, if not all. Um, you know, Taiwan's very different from Korea and Japan and Thailand. But overall, it's this kind of Eastern philosophy where you uh, you don't speak out. If you have something bad to say, you don't say anything. Especially if the guy or someone is uh, at a, a higher status than you or you respect you don't you don't make eye contact you don't say anything bad if you uh, you know you just bottle it up not only that oh uh traditional asian people are the worst at expressing emotions emotions are taboo uh feeling and mental illness is mental, very, oh, very 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 taboo. much taboo yeah very much taboo uh you feel depressed well it's probably if it's not a physical reason there's something wrong with you it's shameful you bring shame to your family you don't fucking say shit don't say anything because then people are going to think you're crazy people are going to think there's something wrong with the family and all this stuff and you know and 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 i'm so fortunate i had such a great uh, great supervisors in my family therapy program such a great program uh, they made me do a, a family genogram, you know, so I have to go back and, and research, you know, my parents' parents and that cultural context. It was not just a genogram, it was a cultural genogram. And so back in Taiwan in like the World War II era, everyone was poor. Taiwan was ruled by Japan. Um, and so everyone in that generation, you know, wanted to, to emulate the Japanese culture, which was very stereotypical patriarchal male i i bring home the money or whatnot but i don't have to give you emotional support or anything that's my way of showing you love not to say that that's a bad way of showing love but that that was the only requirement i didn't know my dad was japanese yeah yeah <laughs> hey you learn something new every day right <laughs> go ahead but yeah you know and and yeah it's it's not just to Asian cultures, I think a lot of cultures like that but um but yeah, so basically, you know uh my parents got fucked up in their own weird way, and they had their own demons, my mother especially uh and they you know I learned so many fucked up things about my my family's uh past, and so many really things that really require therapy or some sort of help but Again, it's swept under the rug. Mm-hmm. You know, fucking talk any, about it. any highlights you want to share? Yeah, um, especially with my mom's family, and that's why she has so much anxiety and depression and 
neuroticism. You know, dad, her dad was like that. Um, um, I still don't really know the details, but my, my mom grew up very shy, very quiet, kind of the good girl thing. And then, uh, basically just the highlights. I mean, and it's still going on now. Um, I just found out that I had an aunt, her sister, which they never talked about. I found this out like, like two, three years ago. And they never talked about it because, um, they would file lawsuits on each other, you know, like, and then she basically excommunicated herself from the family. And then even right now they're going through my grandmother, my mom's mother passed away not long ago. And that's already bad enough. But after that, then the siblings would fight, uh, over, you know, who gets what it's just a fucking nightmare. And, and, and so they, they sue each other. Uh, these are, these are family members suing each other. And, um, and again, so anyways, there's this whole part of like this whole f- part of the family I've never met. It's kind of nice though when you have a picnic, the lawyers can come, and they can cook. It's it, it it does add a little bit of formality, you know, when they're That's rocking nice. their ties. It's kind of nice it when the nice. picnics. You hit a croquet shot, you sign a document. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have a hot dog, you sign a document. At least you know you're legally safe. <laughs> you're legally safe with all those lawyers around. Ah, uh, yeah. But so I mean. So yeah, it's it's generations, and we were talking before we started rolling about mm. how important um, overcoming emotional and spiritual illiteracy and yeah. poverty in this country is. You know, forget you know, put financial poverty mm-hmm. aside just for a second. The ripples of emotional illiteracy and emotional poverty are like one really fucked up person's their ripples can yeah. go for 400 500 years yeah um and yet we focus on all these other things as if mental health isn't important i don't think there's any topic that's more important no. to the future of the globe yeah than than mental health but for some reason it gets put in the back seat maybe because it's so complex yeah and it's not something that maybe is necessarily good in the hands of a bureaucracy or a yeah. government yeah I, th- I think yeah you're right it is super complex and then i think a lot of pe- i think a lot of it is a lot of people don't understand it you know that's where education and advocacy comes in you know because it is a fucking hard thing to understand yeah. you know i've dedicated many years studying and i still still you know i'm nowhere near really understanding all of it but it's just yeah we got to spread the word you know because it really is an investment in ourselves and future generations because you're right. I mean, these ripples, no matter how hard you try to quiet the, the demons, no matter how hard you try to fucking look the other way, they mess with you if you don't address them. Yeah, and stopping the cycle is, is not easy. It takes no. a lot of work and a lot no. of focus. And um, yeah, it's no. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. Um so where do you feel like uh, any other snapshots that uh, that you'd like to to share? Uh I mean I just want to say that I was very fortunate uh in in high school. You know, I, I up to my whole life I've had many suicidal attempts and uh my high school its teacher noticed something. And again, this is going back to my idea of, you know, that it's the educators that see stuff first. He told me to to see a therapist and I to this day I I I thank him, you know. Uh, I'll say his name. I mean, uh, Mr. Granoff, if you're listening or anybody, you know, he was like a physics teacher. I suck at physics, by the way. I was failing that class. Uh, but he, he looked, you know, past my failing grades and, and really told me to get help. And I did. And I've been seeing the same therapist for 10 years. Uh, great therapist. Uh, and it's 
made me who I am today, which I'm, I'm doing all right. I, I, I like who I am for the most part now. Hated myself before. Um, but yeah, so, oh, and I guess just another snapshot. I mean, this is kind of important. Um, so after the breakup that I was talking about, uh, and I, after I found out that she was dating my friend, that was, that was it for me. I, I, uh, I mean, I already tried to kill myself a lot of times. Uh, I stole my brother's gun. Um, you know, I almost pulled the trigger and it, I mean, I think for the most part, I can't speak for everybody, for, but most people who have suicidal times, I mean, you, I think you don't necessarily want to die. Dying is, it's scary because you're alone and you don't know what's going to happen. And, um, but you just want the pain to stop. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I just remember, like, I think and that's what gave me perspective is because, like, I was so close to death. And 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 I was I was hitting rock bottom, and I I checked myself into a, a, a psychiatric facility for a week, and I was so scared because I didn't know what to expect. I, uh, but but I knew it was the right thing for myself, and it was. Um, and so you know, I spent a week in in the hospital, and you know, how did your parents react to that? And they were very supportive and concerned, and it. And that's part of the dynamic is it had to get to that point for them to kind of come together, it, you know, and, and, and we kind of learned this. This is called like a, I forget what it's called, but anyways, um, it is, it happens in a lot of families where the prescribed patient, right? The quote unquote pres prescribed patient, the one who is needing therapy and is depressed is doing that to give the family something to, to bring the family together, you know, um, in family therapy, we learned that it's not just one person. No matter what, everyone in the family contributes to the dynamic of it. Even if it's, a, you know, a father or mother who abandoned, you know, and you don't even know, they're still part of the family dynamic. So anyways. Even if it was somebody that died when you were two yeah, years old. Yeah, it's, they still hold this, this, they, this, they still have a piece of the, the family dynamic and, you know, the, the relationship. You know, it's all a big circle. Um, so, uh, so I just want to, you know, put that out there for all my family therapy supporters. You know, that's. Um, but yeah, so they were very supportive, um, and they came together. My family came together, which, you know, was nice. But it just it had took that. Um, but you know, it's it was my experience in the hospital was. It was surreal, you know, because part of it, they, they had me on too, too many SSRIs, too many antidepressants, so I was feeling pretty loofy. But it was just like I was in so much pain that I numbed myself. It was nice to get away from my life, and I just slept, you know. And uh, and apparently, I, you know, I get along really well with schiz schizophrenics, I'll yeah. tell you that much. Yeah, we, I, I made a lot of friends there. Um, but, yeah, it was just a surreal experience, and... You know, I wish I could say that after I came out of the hospital, things got better. They didn't. I was struggling. Um, I finished up school, uh, and I finished my internship, which was the hardest thing ever. Being a therapist while you're going through intense, fucked-up problems yourself, oh, I felt like such a hypocrite. But I feel like I... I, I like to feel like that I, I did good and, and that my clients liked me. 
Um, but I, you know, my personal belief is that it makes you a more empathic yeah. person because you lived it. You didn't read it in a textbook, right? And yeah, yeah I, I think it makes a therapist more intuitive. That's my personal belief. As long as they're not mm. coloring the session no. uh, with their with own their needs. own personal ideas and yeah. personal needs, yeah, definitely. I mean, I feel like, yeah, and, and in retrospect, I think that that really actually made me a better clinician. Not not only because I dealt with it, but I was dealing with it then. Mm. And and actually, you know, I don't usually like to pat myself on the back, but the fact that I went into the therapy room and put myself out of my issues that I was going through right then out there to really be 110% present with their issues. And we're talking sexual abuse issues. I'm pretty proud of that. Um, and I think, and I, I honestly think uh, I, I did help those people, um, which makes me feel so good. Can you see how brave you are? Yeah. Cause so many times I couldn't even get out of bed let alone sit there and, and and be support for someone else who was going through hell. I still remember a few sessions where, you know, again, I, I, I checked my own issues out, but what they were saying was so close that after the session, I ran to the bathroom and I bawled. Wow. You know, and it hurt so much because they're kids. And that... You know, it it was very similar to things that I went through and sometimes much worse. And, and they're, these are kids. You know, they're fucking kids. They don't, they, the most they should be concerned about is skinning their knee and stuff. Not fucking, oh my God, am I going to get raped today? You know, one of the things that I like to stress on the podcast is the people that are having trouble having compassion for themselves because they weren't raped because mm -hmm. they weren't beaten but maybe because a parent was indifferent yeah. um is the message is still the same to that child as it is to the child that's getting raped yeah. which is you don't matter yes and that's what's important you know it uh a parent who is not interested in you mm -hmm. i think can be every bit as traumatizing as uh, a parent that does things that are more traumatic yes yeah, and I'm so happy that you bring that up because what I learned at the advocacy, you know, friends and everyone always ask me, oh my God, how do you do it? And and I mean, after that happens, how, how do they even recover? Is it even possible? And I would say, you know, I'm not confident in a lot of things, but I'm pretty confident that in order for the healing process to begin, yeah, it's it's about being there for them, to support them, to believe them. Because when you... When you think that they made it up or when you, you know, say, oh, you're just striving for attention. Yeah, that's the mess. It's almost as traumatic, maybe sometimes even more traumatic. Yeah. That, okay, even my own parent or caregiver doesn't believe the me. The world that. really is not safe. Right. Yeah. And yet there's such safety in certain places yeah. of the world. And yeah. I think that's what I want this podcast to accomplish is to yeah. tell people, yeah, it's a raging sea out there, but mm. there are islands of incredible beauty and yeah. safety and um, human connection that, mm. that make life feel right. Yeah. You know? And and I just want to say that I found your podcast in my depths of depression and, and rage. And, you know, every time I listen to it, oh, 
you know, I, I, I think I even sent you a Facebook message during, I was like stuffing myself, I, I stress eat. I was stuffing myself at some crappy Chinese buffet, you know, because I was feeling horrible about myself. And I was listening to your podcast at the, while I was doing that. And it gave me enough energy to pay my bill, go home and and live my life you know and i even remember sending you a message and and i still i still feel that way you know this you're right this podcast is necessary it is a safe haven uh you know it's okay to talk about our demons and it's okay to hear oh my god those other people they felt that too i feel so bad that i messaged you back and said fuck off well you know i got over that after about you know another year of therapy but a, my therapist appreciated the bills, so don't worry about that. <laughs> is there is there anything else you'd like to uh, to add before we uh, we wrap up? Sure. Uh, just want to say that there is beauty in life, you know, and there's beauty through the deepest depths of depression. You know, it was my experience with hospital and depression and suicide, and that led me to find my path now where. I'm much happier, you know. I'm pursuing music, uh, which I always ignored because I never, I, and I still fear that I'm not good enough. But, but no, you find what you're passionate about. Life, you find beautiful things after you experience those hardships. And so, those people out there who are struggling and think there's something wrong with them or thinks they're crazy, no, I, I argue that actually you're stronger because you have to go through it and you gain so much more perspective. So much more and so much strength as so you strength. as you continue to heal because it reminds you, wow, if I got through that, fuck, I can get through a lot of stuff. Two more questions. Uh, sure. Actually, I realize I want to ask you, um, can you describe what it was that made you uh, decide that you didn't want to do marriage and family therapy anymore? And it, was it the passion for the music yeah. or was there a lack of passion in the no, family therapy? It was a, it was a passion in music that, and, that, and it's, it was been a struggle because I love both. I loved being a therapist and I felt like just because of my experiences, I, I was, I was decent at it. You know, I really listened and, and, but, but what it was, it was just, man, my love for music was just so much more. And I was so unhappy that I never tried. And so, so it was tough. I, I, I was, I kept telling myself, I'm going to do both. I'm going to do both. I'll find a way. And not to say there's not a way, but you know, it was only till a few weeks ago or maybe about a month ago, I decided I'm going to have to sacrifice one, mm -hmm. uh, and and I loved being a therapist part. It's the fucking red tape part that's annoying. It's licensing, you know, because I would have to be. I'm going to move to Boston, and then I'm going to hopefully move to L.A. Um, but state by state, you know, licensing boards are all different. So I just said, "Fuck this! I don't yeah. want to deal with it." Um, so yeah, it's definitely has nothing to do with me not liking therapy. I think it's. More loving music. It's more loving music. Yeah. And, and the therapy, in my experiences as a therapist, has gotten me here to really pursue what I want to pursue. The last thing I want uh, you to talk to the listener about mm -hmm. is um, how to find a therapist that's a good fit for you. You know, and and I appreciate that you always mention um, or a social worker, right? Yeah, I, I feel bad that I always say therapist and I forget to say social no, worker. Yeah, I mean, just uh, there there are a lot of community uh, resources out there and things that you mentioned. I think I, I you know off the top of my head, I can't really think of anything else to um, suggest. My suggestion though is not to give up. I think yeah, yeah, it's really easy to, to get a bad one. That, yeah, that does not. You know, and, and it may not even be a bad therapist. You just might not groove. You know, yeah. e 
every therapist is a different human being, you know. And with therapy, it's such a unique profession that it's not like、uh, you know, it's a checklist. Oh, you have you know, it's it's very personal experience. It is. So what I would say is just don't ever give up. Don't don't let one experience or hell even multiple experiences tarnish that hope of finding help because it really helps. I would. I honestly would not be alive. I wouldn't either. I would not be alive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, here's to being alive, buddy. Yeah. Yeah. Cheers. We have lots of alcohol in this room right now. And, <laughs> no. No. <laughs> But yeah, definitely. Thank you, Michael. Thank you very much. Well, I really, really enjoyed talking to Michael, and what a great example of. You may be able to know something intellectually with the healthy choices, but emotionally being unable to to take that step because. The anticipation of that that pain or letting somebody down is so profound.、Um, really appreciated him him contacting me, and I hope you guys enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Before we go out with some surveys, and I got some really good, awfulsome moments. You guys、uh, totally came through this、uh, this week.、It、makes me so happy when you <laughs> when you give me some good ones. I、uh, want to remind you, there's a couple of different ways to support the podcast.、Um, we've had a little drop off in.、Uh, And people who are monthly donors, and、uh, would love to see that that、um, that number boost back up.、Um, you can sign up to be a monthly donor for as little as five bucks a month.、Um, you can also make a one-time PayPal donation.、Um, we really, really appreciate appreciate the monthly donors,、um, and、uh, super simple to to sign up. Uh, you can also support us、uh, financially by shopping through our Amazon search link. It's on our homepage, right hand side, about halfway down. Then, if you do decide to buy something,、um, we get a couple of nickels from Amazon. Doesn't cost you anything. You can support us by buying a T-shirt or a coffee mug,、um, or、uh, non-financially by giving us a nice、uh, write-up and rating in iTunes, and、um, by spreading the word through social media. So, really appreciate you guys、uh, doing what you do. Let's get to the surveys. This is, this is from the、uh, being hospitalized survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Ash.、Um, she's in her twenties, and she writes, "My first hospitalization was when I was 15 years old. I tried to slit my wrists in hopes of ending my life. The second was two years ago when I lost my will to live, but I didn't." Actively attempt, I passively stopped eating and drinking water for about a month and collapsed at my school.、Um, describe your experience. The first time felt like a summer camp. The staff was staff was very helpful, as well as non-judgmental, and the other kids made me feel like I wasn't alone. The second time felt like prison. The staff wouldn't give me my meds I needed and lied about administering them when my family asked. I felt like I was losing my sanity even more than before I was admitted. I think that one、uh, really highlights how how it's not the hospitalization itself; it's the execution of the hospitalization by the people that run it, and I suppose the attitude of the of the patient and the, their issues, but.、Um, Endlessly fascinating to me the breadth of experience of people who、uh, have been uh, put into uh, psychiatric uh, facilities. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by Jolly, and she writes: Growing up, my father always seemed sort of creepy to me. Nothing untoward happened, but I was away,、uh, aware from a very young age that he's more or less a creep, and have always felt 
uh, at least mild discomfort around him. Luckily, it seems I had nothing to worry about. When I was about 17, he finally explained, you know, you'd be pretty hot if you lost a few pounds. So thank God that I'm fat, I guess, question mark. That is, if also if Awfulsome had a diamond state, you know, where, where all the Awfulsome just got uh, compressed into its most essential hardest form, this one is a front runner for Awfulsome. Oh my God. I can't imagine how painful that must have been in, in the moment, but uh, all you can do is laugh at that now. This is uh, from the hospital, being hospitalized survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Scotty. He is bisexual in his 50s. Um, he was hospitalized for depression and being suicidal. Uh, I was willingly uh, admitted to a locked ward for nine days. It was an eye-opener, and it was the best thing I could have done. Uh, before I was discharged, I was asked to go to an outpatient program at our hospital. It ran five days a week, and it runs for eight weeks. We learned in more detail about mood disorders, codependency, anxiety, communications, relationships, and relaxation techniques, and acupuncture. We had group therapy and met with our primary counselor twice a week. It was amazing. The group was a true mixture of illnesses, socioeconomic, race, religion, and education, but we stopped being strangers and became friends. We also became a great support network for uh, for ourselves. More places should run such a program. Thank you, Scotty. This is an awful moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Cat Sonic Cat. He writes, I had just started my new IT job, and while I was working on a server, I made a mistake that caused 5,000-plus users to experience immediate difficulties on their computers. I was freaking out and in the back of my mind dreading looking for another job as I would surely be fired. I ended up working 12 hours straight to help fix uh, what I had so badly broken. I walked down to my car feeling dejected, depressed, and more stressed out than I'd ever felt in my life. I just wanted to get away from the horror that was my day. I start my car in the parking garage, and almost immediately, smoke starts billowing out from under my hood. I turned it off and just leaned forward in despair. At that moment, I started to believe that someone or something in the universe was fucking with me. I managed to keep the job and got my car towed. Truly awfulsome. I actually would have loved if you'd hit the trifecta and when you lean forward in despair, your horn went off and somebody told you to shut the fuck up. That that would have been an awfulsome diamond. Um, this is the hospitalization survey filled out by, I uh, love this name, Maybe not the first time we've had it. Uh, if not, uh, kudos to you for uh, Anne Hedonia. Uh, she calls herself. She's straight. She's in her 20s. Uh, why were you hospitalized? It was last March of 2013. I'd been suffering from MDD, which I'm guessing is um, uh, manic depressive disorder, for about four years or so since 13 years old. My meds had been recently cut off due to insurance issues, and I was going through pretty bad withdrawal brain shocks and everything. My mom's uh, a pretty avid hoarder and I was sick and tired of putting up with it. 
So I took it into my own hands to try to do something. But one day I found myself alone, trying to clean up her mess, surrounded by chaos, and my suicidal thoughts came rushing like a tidal wave. My first instinct was to pick up the phone and scan through my contacts, frantically trying to talk to someone, but nobody answered. And it was not as if I felt close to anybody who could help me through this moment. It was as if I could see myself on a Google map, and as I zoomed out again and again, I found myself more and more isolated, even until I had zoomed out so far you could see our entire planet. I started looking for pills, but there weren't enough that I felt could do proper damage. I was truly trapped here. I didn't want to do anything messy involving blood. That's just inconsiderate. Someone has to clean that up, you know? So I literally ran to this after-school program I'd been attending and spoke to the director, and she took me to the emergency room. Man, does that warm my heart when I read stuff like that. Um, Describe your experience. Um... I spent about 12 days in the loony bin. It was the scariest thing I've ever voluntarily put myself in at first. Uh, It was not as bad as I had expected. Although the food is fucking horrendous, that was probably the scariest part. Even though I was homesick, I actually liked being in the cuckoo's nest. It's the one place where you don't have to pretend. No more fake smiling or lying about how excited you are for your future when you're not even sure you have one. No more pressure to leave the house or snarky comments from your parents because you so seldom do. You can just be as sick as you are. That in itself was freeing for me. I was actually in the adult ward because the young adult ward was full. Parentheses, I wonder why. So there were a lot of interesting, dare I say, creepy characters in there. There was one lady who was a cokehead and her boyfriend would smuggle in some drugs for her every other day uh, when he would visit during dinner time. She was definitely my favorite. Thank you for that. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by a guy who calls himself SSRI guy. And he writes, this might be more on the side of awful, but looking back on it, I can only laugh. When I was in grade 10, I was suffering yet another major bout of depression. I was an emotionally neglected child, and mental health was something no one in my world ever spoke about. The pain I felt inside was so intense, and I simply had no one to turn to. So there I was, sitting in math class with a bottle of Tylenol I happened to have in my pocket. I told my teacher I was going to the washroom, and without really thinking about anything, I downed about 30 pills at the water fountain outside the classroom. I didn't know what was going to happen to my body or what I should do next. So I went to the washroom and lay down in the middle of the floor with my eyes shut. I kept thinking any moment, someone's going to walk in, see me laying here, and finally fucking help me. I had my head on that cold, piss-soaked, tiled floor for over 40 minutes. Not only did I feel no effects from the Tylenol, but no one, not one goddamn person in the whole school came in to find me laying there. So I got up off the floor, cleaned up my face, and went back to class thinking that maybe at least my teacher would have been concerned about where the hell I was. Yet, I shit you not, I came back into the class, sat back down at my desk, and my teacher hadn't even noticed I was gone in the first place. At the end of the day, I went home and acted as if everything was normal. I even had to lie to my parents about why I was puking up my guts in the evening, saying it must have been something I ate. I clearly win a prize for the worst cry-for-help suicide attempt, only to be beaten by my school's community prize for the shittiest supervision of students. Now, buddy, that is, that is awfulsome. That is, that is 
beautifully awfulsome. Thank you for that. And I'm so glad that you can laugh about it now. I think that's one of the reasons why I love the awfulsome moments so much because, God, it's so freeing when we can look back at the pain and laugh. Nothing like it. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Bugger All. Um, she is straight in her 20s, uh, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. Um, uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Um, yes, and I never reported it. And then she has one that she doesn't consider. Um, my boyfriend in high school was sexually abusive. He would force his fingers inside me on a daily basis. He was also very emotionally abusive, threatening to kill himself whenever I tried to leave him. Eventually, all this got so bad that my body completely shut down with regards to sex. I felt very intense pain anytime we had sex. It felt like someone uh, was cutting me up with millions of white-hot razors. This, of course, meant nothing to him, and he continued to stick his hands inside me and force me to have sex with him. Having sex with him was the way I could prove that I loved him uh, so that he wouldn't kill himself. Oh, my God, that is so abusive on so many levels. Um, also, I had this... Um, also, and this might not completely count, but my father was very inappropriate with me as a child. When he and my mother divorced, I became a surrogate wife for him. He, could, he would make comments about how pretty I was, the nice shape of my body. He would kiss me on the lips until I was at least 12, and people would even come up to us, uh, me, my dad, my younger sister, and my younger brother, and compliment him on his beautiful wife. One time we were in bed when I was maybe 10 and staying the night at his house. We slept in the same bed and he basically spooned with me, putting his hands between my legs. He didn't touch me. Nothing like that happened, but it was very awkward for me and I remember freezing up because I didn't know what to do. So it was a weird relationship. Like I said, don't really think it counts. And I couldn't disagree more. Um, it It is so completely inappropriate. Um, he did touch you. Just because he didn't touch your vagina doesn't mean he didn't touch you. Um, it, it, I think all of us that are picturing a, a, an adult man spooning um, with a 10-year-old girl, you know, there's a difference between spooning, you know, your little three or four-year-old kid and they're giggling and it's cuddling, but a 10-year-old girl, I'm sorry, that, that's that's way inappropriate. And talking about the nice shape of your body and, um, yeah, it's... That's that's as that's abusive. That is just flat out abusive. So, um, ever been physically or emotionally abused? Uh, been emotionally abused. Um, my mother has borderline personality disorder, so yes, definitely emotionally abused. My mother loved me, then she didn't. She would threaten to kill herself and talk to me about it. She would threaten to kick me out and did a couple of times. She would say I was like my father, whom she hated. Funny thing. Uh, totally didn't know that it is not okay to scream and curse a person out when you were mad uh, until I was 25. I thought making the other person cry was the whole point of a fight. That was my mom. My dad was inappropriate with me as described above, but he was also physically abusive to my mom before they got a divorce, and I saw it. So I was terrified of my father growing up. He had a horrible temper, but he never hit me. Both of my parents used us kids to get back at each other. They would fight over who had to feed us and take us to the doctor. They both leaned on me to help raise my brother and sister and always put me last. To them, I was only as important as I was useful. Oh, that sentence breaks my fucking heart. And so many of us were left with that message that we were only as important as we were useful. 
Oh. Oh. My high school boyfriend was abusive and would threaten to kill himself when I tried to leave. And since I had already been responsible for people who wanted to kill themselves, it was impossible for me not to put him first. My husband, kinda, it's complicated, would threaten to divorce me when we fought or when I became too much of a problem. Aside from that, it was all pretty minor. Yeah, aside from the Titanic sinking, it was a beautiful day at sea. Um... Any positive experiences with the abusers? Yes, I love my high school boyfriend. I love my dad. I love my mom. I love, kinda, it's complicated, my husband. Yes, it complicates things. I feel like I can't feel it properly because of the fact that I love them. I know intellectually how bad things were, but when it comes to feeling it without feeling like I'm betraying them, it's hard. It is also incredibly difficult to put myself first. I feel like, yeah, that was bad, but so what? And that is... A result of numbing out in my opinion that is that is what although your abuse is is worse than mine the feelings that you described it's that numbing out you don't even know what you're feeling you just it's a sense of dread a sense of being tired a sense of not wanting to be there um and because you're numb, you can't. You think people are exaggerating when you're saying, "Hey, that's super fucked up." Well, you couldn't feel it because you had to numb yourself to survive. Um, darkest thoughts: I would sell my soul to kill my heart. Um, God, another another sentence that just ah. Uh, uh, all I want is for that part of me to die so I won't have to let people continue to hurt me. So I wouldn't want to be loved. I would kill for the power to kill my heart. Sometimes I want to run away, become an addict or alcoholic or just kill myself. I would love to just die already and feel nothing. I wouldn't be upset. I wouldn't be sad and I wouldn't regret anything because I would just cease to be. Well, you know what I think reading that is you may not be an addict or an alcoholic, but there is an addiction here to saving people and that is every bit as deadly as alcoholism or drug addiction um, or an eating disorder um, and I encourage you to find a support group um, and a therapist that understands um, what sounds to me like like codependence um, darkest secrets uh, the thing you talked about with Kira uh, the weird feelings about kids I can't even bring myself to write it let alone say it to anyone but I get those horrible feelings and my whole body freezes and I don't know why it happens um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you I like the idea of being dominated I want a man to force me to have sex with him I want him to make me do things while I protest but eventually give in because I enjoy it being demeaned in the fantasy is also a big theme. Theme Having multiple men watching while I am fucked uh, and them all talking about how much I love it. Also fantasize about being with women um, or a woman and a man. How does it make me feel? Uh, a little wet and a little embarrassed. Well, I don't think you should be embarrassed about any of the thoughts or feelings that you have. They seem totally normal to me, especially uh, given what, um, what you've experienced. Um... Anything you'd like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Uh, I got nothing. What, if anything, do you wish for? Someone to love me and treat me right the first time. Um, have you shared these things with others? Yes, my husband felt bad, but it doesn't change anything. What I want doesn't change anything, doesn't really mean anything at all. 
How do you feel after writing this stuff down? Still feel a little embarrassed about the sex part. Uh, that is the most dominant feeling. Next would be how nice it would be to die, to just cease to exist because question 13 will never happen. Uh, and now I am sad. And 13 is uh, someone to love me and treat me right the first time. Um, it can happen. It absolutely can happen. But it's got to start with you advocating for yourself and to get to that place where you can see that you deserve um, love and that you deserve to feel peace and uh, and happiness. Um, this That is all for you if you're willing to do the work of, of getting help and doing what um, the people who know what they're doing, doing what they, what they suggest. Um, anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I would like to say yes, but I don't think I would be a very good influence. Well, we are sending you, above all, we are sending you a gift basket of love because you've been through some serious, serious abandonment. And, uh, I mean, you were abandoned so profoundly by both of your parents. Who wouldn't feel the way you feel? Who wouldn't? This is a happy moment uh, filled out by Sonic Cat. Uh, that's, he is uh, in his 20s. I was with my then-girlfriend and her family at their little cottage in Upper Wisconsin. It was a very remote... Um, it was very remote and right near a beautiful pond. One night, my girlfriend and I walked down to the wooden pier, set up two chairs, and looked at the stars. Being so far away from the major cities, we could see everything. That alone would have been great, but we then decided to go skinny dipping in the pond. The water was the perfect temperature, and he puts in parentheses, minimal shrinkage. And when we swam over to, uh, when I swam over to her, she wrapped her arms and legs around me and kissed me under the perfect sky. I thought, this is it. It's beautiful. Thank you for that. This is the shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself figure girl. She is straight in her 40s, raised in a stable and safe environment, although she qualifies. Dad could have violent outbursts but never hit anyone. Don't know if I would call that stable and safe, but let's read. Um, never been sexually abused, not sure if she's been physically abused or emotionally. My dad didn't always say positive things about my sister and I. Um, no response to uh, any positive experiences with uh, abusers. Darkest thoughts. My adopted son, who has bad issues from a bad past we didn't really know about until we got him, he has abused my daughters, lied and stole from us for years. It has gotten so bad he has to go live with friends. Well, he has made um, well, he has made comments about suicide, and sometimes I wished he would. I hate saying that. I looked so forward to this little boy uh, coming to our family, but he has wrecked so much havoc on my daughters, like kicking them in the stomach till they can't breathe and wielding knives on them. And sad to say, uh, if he was just gone, they wouldn't be hurt anymore. Darkest secrets, lying about how much I depend on alcohol. It's only at night when I am alone. Uh, but I feel so alone and broken that it's all I have. Alcohol doesn't make fun of me or put me down. But, you know, the funny thing is, is if you're an alcoholic, is alcohol will punish you more than any human being ever can. And it seems like it's your friend. Alcohol to an alcoholic is the most two-faced, wonderful friend that you can you can ever imagine. And I'm so sorry about that stuff with your adopted son. I can't imagine 
can't imagine how hard that's got to be. Um, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. My boyfriend touching himself in front of me and staring at me, which we have done, and I love it. It makes me feel sexy, but a bit embarrassed. Anything you'd like to say to someone you haven't been able to, that I drink too much because of loneliness, avoid. It only happened in the last three years since my husband's death from cancer. I want to share this with my boyfriend, but I'm too afraid. Well, you know, my, my thought on that is it, it could bring you closer together. And if you don't share it with him, he's going to find out eventually. So why not tell him now? It, you know, it might... Inviting him into your inner world um, could definitely bring you closer together. Um what if anything do you wish for? And and you would give him the chance to you know possibly help you uh, with this to to be a part of you getting into recovery. Um, what if anything would you like to? We just answered that. What if anything do you wish for? Stability again. My marriage was wonderful. I'm afraid I'm looking for a man just to take care of me because I feel weak and scared and alone. Have you shared these feelings with others to a degree, but not really? How do you feel after writing this down? I feel like I am coming to terms. It, fe it feels free. Anything you'd like to share with someone? If you are a widow, wow, it's the hardest thing in the world. Don't wait three years to get help. So it sounds like you are uh, maybe seeing a therapist. Um, so I wonder if you've shared your drinking with, uh, with them. Just know that there's help if, you, if it gets bad and you don't, you don't have to hide this. Anything, anybody out there going through something where you feel like you're just the worst person in the world and you're a fraud and you might as well end your life because it's never going to get better. People have gone through it before you and they have gotten through it and they're leading lives with peace and stability. This is a happy moment uh, filled out by a woman who calls herself Olive. Uh, she writes, I could work on the same rock cr climbing problem for weeks, and it may be as simple as moving my left hand six inches up the wall. I go through this process with oscillating emotions of frustration, anger, and self-pity, but then it happens. Somehow, after all those hours of effort, my hand lands on the next rock as if it had been there all along. This is when I know that I already have everything that I need, and I simply have to relax and let myself happen. That's some Zen shit right there. That's fucking Zen. And uh, I've experienced that rock climbing before. I love the problem solving of of rock climbing. It's um, I haven't done much of it, but the, the few times when I've, I think they call it solving a problem. Um, I might be mangling the, the verbiage, but uh, the, the couple of problems that I solved, uh, it, it, it's like physical chess. It's such a, it's such a good feeling. This is the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Southern Lady. She is, um, where does it say? Oh, she's straight. She's in her 30s. She was raised, she was raised in a barn. She lives the door open a lot. How is it that three years in, I've never said that? I've never said that. Um, She was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, never been sexually abused, never been physically abused. Uh, darkest thoughts, all my thoughts are deep and dark, haha. -ha. 
Um, oh, those are darkest thoughts. Uh, darkest secrets. I masturbate solely to BDSM porn. No one, including my husband, knows. I'm not sure if I want to act on these fantasies in real life. I am also a compulsive overeater. My husband is also in the dark about my binging, and I don't plan on letting anyone know. I didn't even tell my therapist. Uh, well, sexual fantasies, I know that's going to be the, the, the same thing. Uh, she feels a lot of shame about it. Uh, what, if anything, do you wish for? I wish my anxiety and shame wasn't so deeply ingrained in me. I wish I could be completely myself in front of people without feeling like a disgusting human. And my thought is, is it starts with talking about those things that you just shared with a safe person. And why not start with your therapist? Why not start with your therapist? And then maybe your therapist can come up with a plan for you to broach these subjects uh, if they think it's appropriate with your with your husband. Um, and that's how intimacy is built. And intimacy, though difficult, is fucking awesome. Uh, how do you have you shared these things with others? No. Uh, how do you feel after writing this down? Anxious. I feel shame for the way I feel, and anxious that someone will catch me being my true self. And you know, according to this book I'm reading um, by John Bradshaw, which I keep talking about, uh, it's called "Healing the Shame That Binds." Shame is at the core of all addictions, and we act out whatever our addiction is, to release the shame temporarily, but it comes back even a little bit stronger than it did before, which works us up in, into a state of needing a release. And so we do it again and again and again. Um, and so I think the only way to stop that cycle is to say, hey, I need help. I can't control this. Sending you some love. This is an awful moment filled out by a guy who calls himself Shepherd. He writes, when one of my best friends had died in high school during the candlelight vigil in the parking lot, someone began singing that dreadful Sarah McLachlan song that is in the ASPCA ads. Um, I know that song, uh, The Arms of an Angel, I think is what it's called. Uh, before anyone else joined in, someone else blurted out, he hated that fucking song. Stop singing before I shove that candle up your ass. Everyone started laughing so hard that the tears of sadness became tears from laughing. And what started out as a solemn moment turned into a night where we reminisced about all the wild, hilarious hijinks that he was notorious for. I think he would have approved, especially about the candle. Awfulsome. That is, you know, that might just be a happy moment. I don't even know if that's an awfulsome moment. Um, I suppose because your friend died, but categorize it a little bit more, Paul. Why don't you? flow chart it and then post that on the website that just fills my heart with with joy i just love ah that is just gorgeous well guys thank you for uh for being a part of this and i hope you know that you're you're so not alone in whatever it is that you're going through and um don't give up don't give up i almost did 11 years ago and um i would have missed out on so so much and uh, if you give up, you will be missing out on a lot, too. Yeah, there's been pain and there's been disappointment, but tools I've, I've learned have, have made life um, not only livable, but uh, beautiful and enjoyable. So um, suck on that. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.